It was the spring of 1990. I had finished an evening shift at the restaurant I waitressed at in a small community outside of Kansas City. I was 19. I remember having the windows down, the breeze rolling through the truck. There was a great song on, and I remember seeing the cross hanging from my rearview mirror. All things were in front of me. Little did I know that those dreams were about to come crashing down. Brave Embrace is a true crime podcast where tragedies and triumph collide. In each episode, I'll show stories from the victim's point of view. Let's embrace the brave it takes to step into healing. I'm Kim Case, and this is the Brave Embrace podcast. I was unaware that I was being followed by a gang of four men. Two of them had been convicted to some felonies and were about to serve some time in the pen. They decided to go out and party, and that meant driving three hours from their hometown to Kansas City, where they planned to kill, steal, and destroy. They confronted me in my driveway when I got out of my vehicle. One of the thugs attacked me, grabbed me, threw one of his hands in my mouth to stop the scream. Overtaken by terror as they pulled me into the car, I quickly realized that no one knew that I was being abducted. I screamed, I fought, yet he overpowered me and pulled me in the car. As the driver sped off, I opened the door and I tried to to jump out. One of the men in the back seat grabbed me by my hair and pulled me in and quickly bound my hands in handcuffs. I've often seen in the true crime shows where the officer will slam the handcuffs closed on someone's wrists. I never really thought about what that felt like or what that sounded like in real life. In fact, the clanging of the metal and the tightness with which it grasped my arm made me know for sure that there was no way I was going to get out of this situation. Chaos ensued in the car. All four were yelling directions at each other. I was crying, whimpering in pain and fear, and then the acknowledgement that I might never return home. They quickly started asking me for money and where we were, and I thought if I complied, that might make it a little easier. I began to fabricate a story about being married and pregnant. I was trying to appeal to their humanity. I thought maybe if I fabricated a story about being pregnant, they would not want to hurt not only me, but the unborn baby. I don't know what kicked into me that day to make me want to be a survivor. But I knew one thing. I could lean on my intelligence. I could manage the situation in a way to try to figure out when and how I was going to escape. I didn't know that more than 15 hours lay in front of me in captivity. The violence assumed right away in the car. They began pulling my clothes off. They ripped my shirt, threw my bra out the window. I was terrified. Two angry, intoxicated, and impaired men in the back seat, their hands and mouths all over my body. 
It was a horrible situation and there was so much to fear as I realized that I had no control physically and even mentally as they began hitting me and trying to subdue me. I found myself begging for drunk and drug-crazed monsters for mercy. They were unleashing unbelievable violence and psychological torture on me for more than an hour in the car. They drove from the suburbs of Kansas City south. They were assaulting me in the back seat, driving crazy on and off the, the ramps and exits, and I was hoping that law enforcement would see them, somebody would pull them over. I was trying to peek my head up to even see where we were. I had no idea. The car drove for about 45 minutes while this violence was going on. The driver, Leroy Ross, took an exit, stopped, and opened the trunk. I thought if I was able to get out of the car, I might find a chance to run. I was still handcuffed to one of my captors, Andrew Harper. He was only 19, same age as that I was. He wouldn't talk to me. His gaze was evil. I could tell the one that grabbed me, Kenneth Thornburg, was in charge. He was the one making the rules. He was the one trying to tell everyone what to do. He was also the one engaging in psychological warfare with me. I was begging him to stop, begging him to let me go, begging them not to kill me. He was just playing with my mind the same way he was playing with my body. When Leroy Ross opened that trunk, I thought of that rope. I thought they're gonna shoot me, tie me up, and put me in the trunk. I said that I had to go to the bathroom. I jumped out of the car. The others started to get a something out of the trunk. I asked to be released from the cuff. They did. I started to run. They grabbed me, tackled me to the ground. All of my world existence was broken at this point. How would I ever be pure again? How would I ever be vulnerable? Those components of self were all victimized at once. The person I was when they gramped me would be no longer. Once I tried to escape for the second time, things grew even more intense. They continued to drink and I'm assuming ingested drugs. I was pretty naive at the time. I really didn't know what was happening or what to expect, but there was a will to live burning inside of me. And I found myself trying to look for the exact second when I could make that third escape attempt. They forced me back in the car, handcuffed again to one of my assailants, and they sped down the road. I feel like I was just in and out of awareness at this point. The wounds to my head and face and body were causing such pain. I was naked in this car of four men, knowing that I was being driven to my death. I yearned to tell my family one more time that I loved them, and for that matter, to even explain to them what had happened. I knew they would be forever living with the reality that I just disappeared. What heartbreak for them, what worry for them. I had to stay strong, I told myself. I had to try to get to one of these guys. I had to try to become human. I had to try to get away and promise them that I wouldn't tell. I didn't know we were driving closer to what would be the end. They took a country road, it was gravel. 
I remember the sound of the tires and the screeching of the car as he sped off the highway and threw up some dust. Drove over a set of railroad tracks which made the car bump and made me bounce up. It was frightening and they all laughed. I slammed down hard on the seat of that old vehicle. It was a four-door Nova. It was blue and rusted and it smelled disgusting. But I knew that I wanted someone to know I had been in that car. And they didn't know it. But after they had removed my clothes, I was reaching in the floorboard for the work shirt that I had when they had grabbed me. I knew that work shirt had my name tag on it. And again, I'm not exactly sure where this bit of wisdom came from, but it was one of the pieces of wisdom that sealed the case. I begged to have some kind of covering on my naked body. I reminded them that shirt was down there, and they said, fine, throw it on. When I reached down to grab it, I slid my hand on the back side of that name tag and undid the pen. I pulled it off the shirt, and I tucked it under the seat, knowing that someday somebody would find it and know that I'd been there. The sun was coming up, and the car screeched to a stop. I peered up over the windowsill, and I saw that we were in a country area, really didn't see any buildings, just saw a lot of trees, had no idea where we were. I didn't even know if we were still in the same state. There was some chatter amongst the four, and then the car dove into the ditch, drove along into a grassy area so that it was hiding behind some bushes. This terrified me. That meant that absolutely no one could see us. They opened the door and pulled me out and onto the scrabble area where immediately they all four started assaulting me. They ripped at my body, forced themselves on me. I cried out in pain. I was in agony because underneath me was the gravel and without clothes on, there was no barrier. The rocks were digging into my back and I was screaming out in pain for all the areas of my life. And again, at one point, They would try to subdue me with a hit or a slap or a look or a stern word. Harper, the youngest, was having a difficult time and they were teasing him and yelling at him and he pulled me by my hair and yanked me up and drug me over to an area that was away from the others. Before long, in in an effort to stop the others from teasing him, he began to strangle me. His hand went around my throat and I remember gasping for air was pleading and begging was staring into his eyes with a look of terror they all thought it was pretty funny in the first court hearing when a description of those minutes came up there was laughter I don't understand how someone can watch another harm someone who'd done nothing to them I was in and out of consciousness And when I awoke, I realized the sun was beating down and there was blood on my face. The sun was completely up at this point and it was starting to get really warm. I could hear cars driving by on the gravel road and it was really upsetting to know that they were so close yet so far away. At this point, they had dragged me back through the field to underneath a bridge with a small creek. I could hear the cars going over the bridge, as a matter of fact, and I kept wanting to scream out. They handcuffed me to one of the bridge barriers, and there I was. They all left the area, went up on top of the bridge, and I learned quickly they were going through my purse. 
I had it in my arms when they kidnapped me as I was getting out of my vehicle. And inside was my wallet with pictures of friends. You know, I had just graduated high school and, as silly as it sounds, I had a bunch of my friends' senior pictures in there. I also had pictures of the little ones I babysat and family members. And I remember watching them throw them over the bridge and into the water. And I was just hanging there by the metal cuffs that bound me. I think at some point I yelled out for them to stop. I remember all four being back under the bridge and the assaults started again. One of them was smoking a cigarette and I said something like, give that to me. If you can't have your cigarette, I can't have my freedom. And I threw it in the water. You know, you don't know how to react in a moment like that. You don't know how to, how to be. Everyone always says, well, why didn't you try to run? Or why didn't this happen? In those types of moments, you are managing every critical second, especially when there's this gang environment going on because they would incite each other. I was experiencing tremendous terror at this point. I didn't know how I was going to get away. I didn't know how I was going to get my arm out of the handcuff. I didn't know what they were going to do to me. After they assaulted me again, I heard them talking. I couldn't really understand what they were saying, but it sounded like there was some yelling. And then I heard the car start and drive away. I kind of freaked out because I was just really expecting to hear a gunshot and to feel the bullet piercing me. And I would lay there forever. No one would find me. Dealing with that kind of critical anxiety in a moment that you're fighting for your life really changes you. It changes you in the physiological part of your cells. It changes your heart as you realize that people are bad. It changes your spirit as you begin to wonder what you've done to deserve this. But deep inside, there was a resolve to live. Soon after, Thornburg and Lutz came back under the bridge. They undid the handcuffs. I saw Harper standing at the top of the creek embankment. They pulled me back that way. And again, I didn't have shoes. And they said, we're going to head to that barn. There was a silo in the distance that I could see. And all I remember is feeling so drained so physically spent, so emotionally overwhelmed, yet so angry and so strong as I knew I had to find a moment. Still handcuffed to one of the four, they dragged me through the field along a creek towards the barn and the silo that we had seen in the distance. It had started raining, and while it was cold and felt a little yucky, it also felt like a relief, like a wash, like a gift. And as we approached the barn, the amount of terror I was experiencing just about made me collapse. And as I looked down, I saw something shimmer in the grass. It looked like metal. I wasn't sure, so I bent down. They tugged at me, but I was able to grab it. And as I brought my hand up slowly, 
I saw that it was in the shape of a heart. I knew instantly that it was a a heart buckle, a buckle that goes on a bridle for a horse. And it all made sense. The rain, the gift of the heart buckle. I knew more than at any point during this entire horrible event that I was being held. You see, I was a new Christian at the time. I'd been raised in the faith, sort of. I'd attended Sunday school as a little girl, even had ridden the church bus by myself. I loved learning about what Jesus stood for. And while I didn't know the ins and outs of the Bible, there were a few scriptures that I had learned as a young girl, and I had them in my heart. I had been baptized just a couple of months before this horrific situation, and I could have gone one way or the other. I could have blamed God. I could have been angry at God. But what I felt was a complete resolve of comfort and of inspiration to keep hanging on. I remember looking up into the sky and the trees were blowing. It was a beautiful spring day. I've always been an outdoor girl and something about nature is very soothing. I found a connection to the brilliance of this great big world. And in that moment, I instantly knew that these four horrible people in my eyes had made a horrible choice but I was wondering who are they and why? I was still holding the bent and battered heart buckle as we approached the barn. I could see all the way through. It looked like an abandoned barn with cobwebs stringing to and fro, hay everywhere. I could see the light filtering through the knots in the wood and the cracks. Instantly, there was a pit of hay, and I noticed activity there, and it quickly dawned on me that it was rodents, mice, and rats. I saw a snake. I jumped backwards, and they started to laugh and pushed me forward into the pit. They said, go through that hay and climb up into that hayloft. I was begging, begging, begging for my life. It was just the three at this point, as Ross the driver had left. The dynamic between the three was interesting, and I could tell that it was escalating. They pushed me up into the hayloft and handcuffed me to a pole. They all three left and went outside the barn, and I peered through one of the cracks in the the broken wood slat, and I could see them at a truck. It was an old broken-down truck, the hood open. Looked like they were trying to mess with it as if trying to use it for transportation. I began to pull and tug on the cuff on my wrist, wondering how in the world I could get down. But even worse thought was, how was I going to get out of the hayloft without going back through that pit? There was flies and mosquitoes buzzing around, and before long, I felt like I was being eaten alive. But that wasn't even as bad as what was about to happen. The three marched in, and at least two of them climbed up the small makeshift ladder into the hayloft. They started to rape me again, and I pleaded and begged and just said no. I just said, I am hurting. I'm broken. Please stop. 
began to cry, sob actually, and in a moment of disgust they turned and walked down the ladder. I didn't know in that moment they were walking away, leaving me for dead. It was silent for a while. I think I drifted in and out. The bugs were buzzing around and I was being bitten. There were spiders crawling. I could see the rodents in the bottom of the hayloft. I found some peace though in that moment as I cried out to God. I believed that he saw me. I believed that he knew and I was going to find comfort there as, as if it were his will, I would escape. Nearly 14 hours had passed at this time. The hot sun of the day, no water, no food. Physically, I was drained. I lay there limp, wounded, afraid. When Andrew Harper climbed up the steps, he put his hands on the buckle of his pants and I said, no, please no. And he sat down. Harper proceeded to undo the cuff from the barn wood and put it on his own wrist. That meant we were handcuffed together. He pushed me down and he laid down. He said, I just need to take a nap. I was like, oh my God, please let me go. Please, I beg you, please let me know. I will not tell anyone. I don't even know who you are. I don't even know where we are. Just let me get free, please, and I'll go. It's like, no way. Are you kidding me? They'd never let me live that down. I said, but what about me and my future? I've done nothing wrong. Why are you guys doing this? He just gave me a horrible look and closed his eyes. He started to take some deep breaths. And we were laying on metal roofing, which is the kind that goes, you know, up on barns or on buildings. And it's ridged and it wasn't laying flat. So anytime he moved, it would move. Or anytime I moved it would move. And I knew instantly if I were able to make an escape in that moment, he would know. I said, I've got to go to the bathroom. I've got to go to the bathroom. He said, no way. And I said, I've got to go. So begrudgingly, he got up and he let me walk down the steps and he went with me as he was, you know, handcuffed to me. Went out into the grassy area and I proceeded to try to urinate I remember him messing with the cuffs at that point and him just pulling me and climbing back up into the loft and he laid back down. I took some really deep breaths and I was praying and I was seeking and I was trying to find strength, trying to understand what to do and how to get my arm and wrist out of this tightened handcuff. I noticed though as he was breathing that it got a little deeper and I noticed at one point his eyes kind of doing that movement thing. And I remember from school that being called REM, the REM sleep, and that meant they were pretty deep. I mean, I really wasn't sure, but I thought, okay. So I began to wiggle my hand and my wrist and I held the cuff metal with my left hand and I moved and twisted my right wrist trying to get it out. Again, every time we moved or I moved, the metal roofing would move and he would stir and I find myself quietly trying to comfort him like as if I were holding a baby and rocking it to sleep. I was saying, shh, shh, it's okay, go to sleep, shh, shh. His eyes were rolled back in his head and he was kind of stirring around. And I'll tell you what, I just grabbed that handcuff 
and I pulled my wrist and twisted and turned and the metal gouged my wrist and I could feel the intense pain but I knew that I just had to keep trying. He would stir and move, my heart was racing and I just held tight to the cuff and kept moving my my wrist back and forth. It was basically over his stomach as I was kind of sitting next to him as he was laying down. How in the world was I going to get away? How was I going to escape? And in that moment, my my wrist came free. My arm flung up and my head went back. I stopped in that moment to see if he was moving or acknowledging. And no, he was still sleeping. And I even sensed a little snore. He was closest to the ladder that went back down into that horrible hay pit. The only option I had was to jump from the hayloft down into the floor of the barn. It was quite a ways, and I saw that there were rafters above me, and so so as not to move, I reached my left hand up, and I pulled myself up, and I don't know how. I almost feel as if I were swinging there for a moment, expecting him to open his eyes and grab me. But in that same instant, I flung myself out, and I leapt. I leapt. I jumped out of that hayloft and hit the ground. Quickly turned back up, though, as I realized that he probably heard and knew and was going to be jumping after me. I looked up. He wasn't there. I turned. I started to take some steps. I stumbled. I got behind a bush and I vomited, vomited, vomited. I thought maybe he heard and I looked back up and I was crying and he was still there sleeping. So I ran, but I had no idea where I was. I had no idea which way to go. I wasn't fully clothed. I didn't know if the others were there somewhere hiding. It was so much chaos, I just took off running to a tree line. I learned years later that I waded through a big wide creek and muddy area. I just found some shelter and I hid for a while. I was trying to assess if the others were around and if Thornburg or Harper or Lutz was going to pop back up somewhere. I eventually made my way to an area where there was a house and I hid in the tree line there for a while and I saw kids' toys in the yard. That let me know that I didn't want to disrupt their lives and scar them with this visual. But I didn't know what else to do. I didn't see anywhere else around, and so I hid and waited. Waited to see if anyone came or went. I waited to see if it was their house even, if they lived there. Finally, just fearing, I ran to the door, and I knocked. Hey, thank you so much for listening today. On the next episode of Brave Embrace, we will reach the conclusion of my story and how I managed to overcome my situation. I really appreciate being able to share my story in hopes that it brings you a little hope. Check out our show notes for links to any sites that we talked about and also to sign up to get healing tips and tricks. We have a lot of good things in store for you. We'd love for you to visit our site, check in, follow or subscribe. You know, I've made it my mission to prove that we can rewrite our story at any time. In a world where there is so much hurt, pain, and loss, many of us don't feel like we can make it through. There is power to overcome. Join me next time as we talk about all things brave, sharing compelling stories of courage found in the darkness of difficult moments. Let's join together to give brave moments and embrace.